Hello and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson, and on this month's episode, we're discussing the district's safety, security, and emergency preparedness efforts. One of TID's core values is safety, ensuring a safe environment for customers and employees. Leading this charge at the district is the Security and Emergency Preparedness Department. In recent years, historic rain events, fires in our service territory, and global pandemics have illustrated the value of the work of this department. On this episode, I'm joined by TID Security and Emergency Preparedness Department Manager, Jason Hicks, to discuss the importance of safety and security, how TID prepares for emergencies, and the role of the district when responding to an incident. Jason, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Constance. All right. So as we ask of uh, most of our guests here on the podcast, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background at TID? Certainly. Uh, so I was hired back in 2003, uh, just celebrated my 20th year. Uh, and at the time, I was hired as a fleet analyst within the fleet fabrication uh, division. I spent seven years in that role uh, before being promoted to the fleet division manager. And shortly thereafter, I was promoted to the fleet and facilities department manager. Uh, they created a new department that combined fleet and all of the facilities within the district, which as you heard during the prior podcast, that's now under the construction maintenance area. Uh, I did that for a number of years. Um, and then in 2016, uh, as we'll get to in a little bit later, uh, a number of things occurred that this told the district, we really need to have a, a focus that, that does solely security and emergency. And at that time, uh, I was uh, promoted to the position of security and emergency preparedness uh, department manager. Uh, at the time, it was just just me. Uh, <laughs> so I took this uh, challenge on uh, as a sole fighter. And uh, as that program began to grow, uh, we realized that that there was a need for uh, additional staff. And, and that's how it became the department that it is today. Uh, this position had originally be been created to be the coordinator of our NERC-SIP program. Uh, and then it kind of went away and that transitioned. And then it was re-brought back at the time. Okay. So you mentioned that the department was formed in 2016. What did security and emergency preparedness look like for TID before the establishment of the department? Well, um, basically, it was handled by individuals in each department uh, based on their needs. Um, I, I want to make a point here that you know, that it's not as though the district never had security or any kind of emergency response. Our employees sure. have always come together so well to take on challenges like uh, incidents and security, but it was managed independently by each department on a day-to-day -day basis. And there was a realization that by centralizing and consolidating those um, roles and those responsibilities, it created better consistency, better standards that could be carried out across the district. Yeah, that makes sense. So was there kind of a, an incident or a specific situation that sort of created the, the recognition of the need for the department, maybe, is the way to say it? Yeah, I, I think that would be a good way to say it. Um, as with anything, you know, sometimes it takes action uh, of something for us to rethink how we do things. And in this case, it was the Rim Fire of 2013 that impacted our watershed that began that process. We realized as a district that that watershed uh, burn resulted in a lot of scar damage that would potentially ultimately flow down into the river and into uh, Don Pedro Reservoir. And our concern was the impact of all of that debris 
and how we were going to pro- uh, manage that debris. And so um, we developed a team, uh, not led by me. Uh, at the time, I was a part of that team uh, where we brought all the departments and SMEs together and started developing our very first IAP, which was the Significant Storm Floatable Debris Incident Action Plan. Incident Action Plan, that's what you yes, mean by IAP. Okay, very good. And uh, it was a very collaborative approach. But out of that process, the district and the management realized that there are other similar incidents out there that we could do a better job of preparing for and developing plans for. And that's really what spurred the kickoff of our emergency management program. And certainly as a utility operating in both power and irrigation water, there are no shortages of uh, of potential emergencies to prepare for. So that is correct. I, I can see where the, the need would be recognized for a, a consistent department like this. So now at the time, you were the fleet and facilities manager. How did you get wrapped up in the emergency management effort? Well, uh, about that same time, uh, early 2014, physical security uh, was moved from environmental health and safety to uh, my department as one of my responsibilities, which put me in charge of all the cameras around the district, the facilities, all of our contract security. So I was already starting to step foot into that emergency kind of field a little bit. Mm-hmm. But because I also oversaw all of our facilities, uh, facilities are a key aspect of how we respond to emergencies. Where are they at? How are they available? Are they going to be impacted? Sure. I was a natural part of that team uh, of experts that came together to develop that plan. Okay, great. So what are the current roles and responsibilities of the department? So on a, on a high level, uh, I like to refer to our, our kind of mission and theme, which is to ensure the safety and security of assets and employees and have plans in place for when that doesn't work. Okay. So ideally, like insurance, we hope we never have to use it, but we have it in place for when we do. Absolutely. Um, and then within that, our department is is in three distinct divisions. We have environmental health and safety, security, physical security specifically, and emergency preparedness. Okay. And we're going to get into each of those divisions uh, in just a minute. Um, but what is the what is the current makeup of the department as far as num- number of people had count? So we have a a team of five employees, a uh, small but mighty team. Uh, works very hard. Uh, it's broken up into three key areas. First is our environmental health and safety division, which consists of a division manager and a safety specialist. We have our physical security uh, division of the of the department. Uh, where I have a, a security specialist that handles most of those activities. And then our emergency preparedness division, which is handled by an emergency preparedness coordinator who coordinates all of our plans uh, that we handle throughout the district. Okay, great. So as we mentioned, safety is one of TID's core values. Um, and you mentioned that uh, one of the divisions is the environmental health and, and safety division, uh, which deals, I'm guessing, with hazardous materials. Um, but I ins- assume this division also covers employee safety as well. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, this division, the Environmental Health and Safety Division, oversees all aspects of safety, environmental, and uh, hazardous materials. So you could break it out kind of in key areas. You know, safety is focused on employee safety. So safety of our employees each and every day. And that's managed by our injury illness prevention plan our IIPP, which is a, a basically a plan that 
guidelines how we manage safety, all our safety rules are incorporated in that. For example, um, if we need to do hearing tests, what are the requirements? Who has to do them? If we need to do any kind of environmental studies, for example, when we do gunite, um, what is the risk to our employees? So we'll do studies of the dust and the things that occur during that process to make sure our employees are safe and or if they need PPE to keep them safe. And PPE is? Personal protective equipment, masks, goggles, things like that. And then we'll make safety recommendations uh, for different job duties uh, or needs as they arise based on uh, the requests of those departments. We oversee training, uh, safety training uh, for all of our employees, whether it's general training like hazardous communication, uh, forklift operating, CPR, or if it's something specific like confined space for a given job or, or department. And then, of course, the third part, which is our hazardous materials and environmental, which oversees our hazardous waste program. Uh, it ensures we're meeting all the regulations because like anything else, there's lots of laws that tell us what to do. And we receive, process, and dispose of those hazardous materials uh, in an appropriate and well-documented way and just make sure that all of our facilities are storing their hazardous materials in a proper way as well. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned the the regulations and the compliance that are put upon the district, because I would imagine in each of those areas, um, you know, employee and customer safety training and um, hazardous materials, there are those regulations that are put upon us, but then there are probably some that the district kind of goes above and beyond on to make sure that we're ensuring we meet all of those standards. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a very good assessment. Uh, the district has always been uh, what I would say very proactive uh, in in taking the necessary steps above and beyond the minimum to make sure our employees get what they need and have the safety uh, equipment and training that's necessary to do their job. Awesome. Okay, so let's move into the next division. Um, how about we talk about the security specialist? Uh, so our role with Security, again, we're focused on the physical security. As we heard uh, Dave talk about, you know, cybersecurity before, we do partner with them and we provide the physical security for their cyber assets. But our focus is physical security. So fencing, uh, locks, uh, key management, all of your access badges and access control into different areas. We maintain all of that equipment, the inventory, who has access to what. Uh, we conduct assessments of our facilities, both interior, exterior assessments to ensure that, you know, first and foremost, we're protecting our employees. We're keeping them safe as well as our assets, making sure our facilities are safe and secure and meet any regulations that are required of that. And then we deal with crime and crime prevention. So creating that safe, secure environment, uh, dealing with uh, any type of crime that occurs against the district, uh, working with local law enforcement, uh, and then really just focusing on ways we can do crime prevention through our environmental design of our facilities. How can we make our facilities look less uh, appealing to cr criminals and more appealing to uh, good customers and citizens? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I, like you mentioned, uh, our, our customers and citizens, all of these security efforts benefit them as well because we're creating that safe, secure environment for, um, for them to visit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, as much as we focus on both, uh, it's definitely something where um, the, the, our customers can come in and feel safe because of the things we're doing to the facility. Yeah, absolutely. Great. 
So I would have to guess that most of our listeners probably don't spend a lot of time contemplating the security of TID facilities. And I think that's largely in part because your team does such a good job with that, that we we rarely have issues to report. But can you tell us about some security improvements that the district has made in recent years that um, maybe our the average listener wouldn't know about, but uh, has been a big improvement for the district? Yeah, certainly. Um, one of the things that we did recently is uh, back in 2020, um, our operations yard, our Broadway yard, which is located just a few miles from here, has two gates on the north and the south end. And for many, many years, those gates have always just been open during business hours. So traffic can come and go. We have a lot of vendors, a lot of delivery trucks, things like that. But we recognize that although that was convenient for vendors and deliveries, it created an uh, unsecure and unsafe environment for our employees because if they're out and about working out in, in the yard, uh, anybody can come and go. And so what we did is we invested in a process of of rerouting traffic, moving gates in further, creating aprons off the road for trucks with an intercom system. So we were able to close the gates and keep them closed 24 hours a day, but still provide a relatively seamless process for vendors to be able to get into the warehouse, make deliveries and things like that. So it's little things like that through assessment, through talking to employees, looking for opportunities that are potentially an unsafe environment and then coming up with a solution to make them safe. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Uh, other uh, job duties that the security specialist handles? Certainly. Uh, so we employ um, contracted guard services, uh, both at our uh, business offices here at the Meikle building, as well as at the series office. And we also have uh, security services, both up at Don Pedro, as well as out on our canal banks patrolling the canals and the substations. And those guards are, are managed uh, by us. The contracts are managed by us. We coordinate with them on special needs and things like that. So that kind of all funnels through uh, this area. We also deal uh, a lot with uh, our NERC-SIP program. You know, as, as Dave Ronsack alluded to and talked about, uh, we have a lot of, as an electric utility and balancing authority, we have a lot of uh, obligations and requirements, both regulatory as well as uh, just best practice, that have a uh, physical security component to them. And so our team sits as the physical security uh, uh, delegate or subject matter expert for that NERC-SIP program and providing that support to the program uh, specifically. And just a couple of reminders for our listeners. NERC is the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. And SIP is, uh, stands for Critical Infrastructure Protection. And if you're interested in learning more about uh, any of these, you can check out episode 18 on cybersecurity, which Jason mentioned, and episode 19 of the podcast, which is uh, with Adam Labuga talking about our power control center. All right. So then division number three in security and emergency preparedness department is the emergency preparedness coordinator. Let's talk about that. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, so I have a, a one-person emergency preparedness coordinator uh, who does a lot of work. Uh, two key areas that he is responsible for and oversees. One is our general district-wide emergency preparedness and response program. Now, this is the development, maintenance, training for all of our plans, our responses to emergencies and incidents. Uh, he leads the charge on looking forward to 
potential issues that we may see in the future, new risks that come before the district, and then developing mitigations for those. For example, earthquake, right? We continue to hear about how earthquakes are bigger. They're going to be here soon. We're overdue for the big one, right? Right. So TID develops plans on how we'll respond during an earthquake. How will we respond if it impacts our facilities, impacts our employees' ability to get to work, the community impacts that that affect how we respond. All of that is built into those plans. And then we start to look at what can we do to mitigate the impacts of an earthquake at TID? How, how, how well can our facilities withstand an earthquake? You know, things like that. And it goes beyond, you know, our job isn't, isn't to, to have all the solutions or fix all the problems. It's leading the charge along with all of the departments that are experts in their area whether it's water conveyance, whether it's electrical infrastructure, but we help work with them to coordinate what are potential mitigation solutions. And then we capture that and develop those plans to respond. And that's common in our local hazard mitigation plan, which is looking at those risks and then developing mitigations to consider. Makes sense. The second part of that uh, area that, that he does is our dam safety emergency action plan. So, you know, we're going to get into some confusing acronyms here, <laughs> but you have overall district uh, emergency response, and then you have dam safety. As a irrigation district, we have Don Pedro Reservoir, Turlock Reservoir, all with dams. And those dams are regulated, as is everything else, whether it's federally or state regulated. And so because of that, we have to have emergency action plans, EAPs, that govern how we manage those dams, how we inspect them, what happens if we have a problem with one, who do we notify, communication paths. There's a lot that go into it. For example, Don Pedro's is almost 200 pages of what we do given different scenarios. And those plans require a coordinator. So we have our great chief dam safety program uh, led by Evan Lucas and his team. And then we kind of co work under him on developing the response plans, these action plans as part of that dam safety program. Uh, and so like in 2021, we transitioned those because of our expertise in emergency plan development. Um, we took those plans on as part of our duties uh, in partnership with our dam safety program. And then we matched the plans to our existing plans. So they have a common theme and a common flow uh, across the district. That makes sense. Kind of refers back to that consistency you had mentioned before. Exactly. Okay, great. All right. So let's kind of look at then a holistic view of emergency preparedness and, and what that looks like for the district. How does the district go about uh, anticipating and, and preparing for these emergencies that we hope never happen? Well, I'd, I'd like to say we shake our magic eight ball and then it tells us what to do, <laughs> but we all know that just it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so what the district does is, is we've developed uh, two types of plans for the district as a whole. Um, the first is our incident action plans, IAPs, and then our emergency operations plan, EOP, which is the parent document. Okay, so let's let's start with the EOP then. Um, can you take us a little bit deeper into what's involved there? Absolutely. So an EOP, Emergency Operations Plan, is very high level. This is not how we are going to deal with a specific incident, but rather how TID will respond 
to an emergency. Very general. Uh, it's a foundational plan. It incorporates things like our continuity of operations, our continuity of district. What happens if we were to uh, lose board members? How can we continue to function as, a, as an entity? Uh, is all kind of captured in this process. Uh, if we lose employees, if we have a pandemic like mm -hmm. COVID, you know, how do we function? So it's very high level. Part of that is uh, two federal requirements, FEMA requirements. One is, is that we have to adopt NIMS, the National Incident Management System, and ICS, the Incident Command System. So NIMS and ICS. Those are a requirement uh, from federal government, from FEMA, that, that we as an organization must adopt and build into our EOP if we want to be eligible for grant funding, recovery grants, things like that. And so part of this plan outlines how we adopt those programs and how we implement those programs within the district. And, and what are those programs actually? So uh, specifically, we'll break down our IAPs. And that's really where we see those programs broken out uh, is in our plan development and then in training. And we'll talk about training, I think, in a little bit where we uh, tr will be training our employees on ICS, the Incident Command System. But let's talk about IAPs first. Now, not to confuse your listeners, because again, emergency management is full of acronyms, but we are in the process of transitioning uh, from calling them IAPs that I keep referring to, and we will be calling them ERPs, Emergency Response Plans, because emergency response is a little more better define of what we're actually developing in those plans, which is a pre-planned response of what we're going to do given a specific incident. Uh, for example, major power outage. This major power outage ERP will guideline us through the initial response if we were to have a major power outage or a canal break or a significant storm or a wildland fire. Uh, those are the types of things that we will be putting into uh, those ERPs that used to be IAPs. Okay. So IAPs are now transitioning to emergency response plans. Correct. ERP. Okay. Because in fact, it's a, it's a response plan. It's how we're going to respond to any number of situations. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. And then are there damn specific plans? Yeah, so as I, I mentioned earlier, we have our emergency action plans, EAPs, yes, another acronym, that are very damn specific. And those are driven predominantly off of regulatory requirements. Um, and so there is a key difference there. You know, the, the emergency response plans, we as the district have said, hey, we see there's a scenario out there that this could happen. Let's come together as a department, as an organization, and let's prepare in advance for that. The EAPs tend to be a regulatory requirement that, yes, we would probably have done something anyways, but how these are written, the components that go into them are very closely uh, built off of the requirements that are set before us, either by the state or the federal government. Okay. And I, and I want to double back on that. When you mentioned uh, the state and federal government, um, the regulations that are, are enforced upon us. I want to go back to NIMS for a minute yeah. because I think that's a really important kind of foundational aspect of what your team does and, and the training that you provide to TID employees. Can you tell us what that is and how that comes into play in an incident? 
Yeah, we can talk a little bit about NIMS. So the National Incident Management System was developed uh, after 9-11. When 9-11 occurred, if you re recall, they, de they developed the Department of Homeland Security, consolidated all the intelligence agencies, FEMA, and through that recognized that we needed a standardized uh, response process. And uh, the federal government looked to California. California had SIMS, the Standardized Emergency Management System that goes back to uh, the 80s, and said, let's take that, let's copy it a little bit, let's tweak it, and let it fit the federal government and, our, and federal, you know, across the country. And that's how they came up with NIMS. And a component of that is, as I mentioned earlier, the incident command system. The incident command system is that organizational structure of how you build out a response organization to an incident. So you have different positions, who reports to who, and that structure expands and collapses based on the needs of the incident and the size and scope of that incident. Okay. So similar to how your group creates response plans, this the NIM system kind of creates that structure in which multiple agencies can respond to an incident. Yeah, it's it's to ensure there's a standardized response across the country. So regardless of where you are in the country, who you're with, whether you're with a local, a state, or a federal agency in partnership for that incident, you're all talking and thinking the same language. Mm -hmm. And again, not related to, not built around a specific incident, but just a framework that can be applied regardless of the situation. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so knowing that uh, these plans that uh, that your group has created is intended to kind of act as a, a roadmap through an incident, if you will, um, what exactly is included in a plan and how do you design it to include the necessary guidelines needed to be helpful, but so that it still remains flexible enough to be applied to whatever the incident might be? Uh, okay, yeah, let's. Let's break one down. Um, we'll use, uh, for this example, let's use the wildland fire. So we have a, we have a response plan for wildland fires and all of our plans have basically the same sections and, and break up. But obviously the content is going to be a little bit different based on the type of plan or what the plan incident is for. So in the case of a wildland fire, the first thing you're going to do is have kind of your introduction. Why do we need this? Why do we need a wildfire plan? What's the history of wildfires? What's the risk to the district, the district's assets, its people as it relates to wildfire? Then we kind of transition into our purpose and scope, which is what are we trying to accomplish? You know, our assets, our employees, uh, the general public, you know, keeping things safe and protected as best as we possibly can through that incident. From there, we then identify what we call activation levels and deactivation levels. Now, in the government's inf infinite wisdom, uh, activation levels operate backwards. So uh, you would think that a three would be the highest. Three is actually the lowest. So you go low, medium, high, which is activation three, two, one. Okay. So it's more like a rocket launch than yes, how you would kind perfect, of approach it. Yes, perfect logically. example. I like that. So... <laughs> Uh, we develop those three activations levels, a low activation, a medium, and a high activation. And, and, and then we build into those, what does that response look like? Maybe a low activation is just monitoring a fire that's occurring somewhere outside the district. We see it. We know it's there. We, we activate a few people to monitor that. Maybe we engage 
fire to just see where its direction, how it's headed, is it approaching us? Then as it gets closer, it's about to, to be a problem. We grow to a medium. And if it's burning within the district, we're, we're large, we're at a full activation, right? And so how many people who responds for each of those activation levels, we pre-build that out. And then the other direction, as the fire goes past, how do we de-activate uh, to a lower level? Because obviously we don't need all of our employees tied up if they're not needed anymore for that incident. So let's get them back to work, back to their normal duties. And then uh, from there, we, we move into for each of those activation levels, what are the roles and responsibilities for each individual department as it responds to those? So at a low level, I talked about there's a fire somewhere, right? So maybe we come together with, with key decision makers, we have a com communication component, and we start talking about, okay, if it comes closer, if we activate, if it becomes a bigger problem, what are we going to do? Do we need to uh, depower portions of our lines? Do we need to stop water flows? You know, what does that look like? We're not really doing those things yet, but we're putting the plan in place. And so that's how the plan guides you to that point, because it doesn't say you will kill the power here or here because you don't know where the fire is going to be. So it just says, bring people together and talk about how we can protect our assets. But it doesn't say which asset, which location, because that's going to be unique to that incident. So that's where it allows you that flexibility to adjust for that specific incident. Maybe we put some messaging out for our employees and to the public of what we're doing so they feel secure that we are aware and, and taking action. So depending on the ERP and what incident it's designed around, it, it might involve individuals from many departments or only one or two. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We want to make sure that uh, everybody that has a voice or needs a voice is present at that planning process and that decision process because we aren't the experts of water. We're not the experts of power. We rely on those experts to work with us. To, to develop a solution. With security and emergency preparedness. Exactly. Right. Okay, continue with activation levels. Yeah, so if we're at a medium, the fire's here, now we take some of that pre-planning and now we have crews going out and doing things, right? They're killing power, they're separating lines, they're stopping water, whatever needs to be done. We're coordinating with the counties, we're coordinating with fire. You know, we're, we're working in a much more fast-paced environment. And then, of course, a high-level uh, you know, we have crews working with fire crews. We're, we're, we're full blown. Everybody's out there hands on deck. All right. Uh, continue with the, the other sections of the ERP. Yeah. So then we start talking about more general things like how are we going to operate when we are in the middle of an emergency incident? Uh, how do we communicate? Who does the communicating? The most important thing that, that is, uh, common across all incidents is good, solid communication. Uh, that is consistent across all platforms. So not just what do we see on Facebook, but what is the message we put out? Is it the same the message the county puts out, the same the message that the sheriff puts out, that fire's putting out? So we collaborate together on how we're going to communicate, how we're going to structure our organization, hence the ICS structure, uh, how we're going to operate within that, uh, who's going to do what, who has what authority, how we function. That's all kind of little small sections built into that operating part of the incident. And then last and, and sometimes most important, recovery. Uh, both physical recovery as well as financial recovery. Physical recovery, uh, how do we actually restore damage? Mm -hmm. If we lose power poles, how quickly can we get them restored? 
What's that look like? What do we need to buy? Do we have everything we need? Do we need to borrow? You know, all of that is built into that recovery phase. And then financial recovery, which could last for years. We're still dealing with some financial recovery with federal government from 2017, uh, this year alone. So um, that's a way for us. And that's why we do what we do is so that way we have the opportunity to receive funding from FEMA to help offset the cost to us. And by doing that and going through that process and getting money back from FEMA, that's savings to our ratepayers that they don't have to pick up the tab for. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so obviously a lot goes into these plans. How does your team go about developing the plans? Well, as I said earlier, once we ruled out the magic eight ball, uh, we realized that it really needs to be a coordinated effort. And and we, as SNEP, we coordinate that process, but we're certainly not the experts. We're not the subject matter specialists for those different incidents. So what we do is we put that team together. So for example, with a canal break, it might involve civil engineering, water distribution, uh, hydrology, communications, uh, maybe even line department, because a lot of our electrical infrastructure runs along the canals, sure. right? So we all come together. And we facilitate a conversation around risk and thresholds. Uh, and we, we continue to narrow those risks and thresholds down until our three key kind of activation levels kind of surface to the, to the top where we can handle up to this threshold, just day to day operations. But once we hit here, we need to take a more serious collaborative approach to it. And that's kind of where we start building out that framework and. We'll build all that into a matrix, run that through the gamut, test it, talk about it. And then when we start to feel good about it, then we start to write the plan around that research and brainstorming. Okay. All right. And so when you said thresholds earlier, you're kind of referring to the the triggers that may um, then launch the next level of... Yeah. activation. Is yeah, that I'd say it's twofold. Uh, one is what are those thresholds that would activate us to the next level, which is really tied to what is the district's threshold for risk mm-hmm. to a certain level, right? Okay, great. All right. So, and I, I think you alluded to this a little bit, but now you've got this response plan written, but how do you know that it's going to stand up to the crisis at hand? Is there a, is there a process by which you go about testing, quote unquote, these plans? Uh, yes, there is. <laughs> uh, we conduct exercises. Uh, we, we do it two ways. So we will conduct, once a new plan is developed, we'll, we'll, we'll sit down and we'll do a training seminar and tell people what's in the plan uh, beyond just those subject matter experts, but people that, that would potentially be involved in a response. And at that time, they're given an opportunity to say, hey, what about this? Or did you think about this? So it gives us an opportunity to tweak the plan then. Then we uh, set down a, a five-year path of exercises, usually starting with a tabletop exercise where you come together with that same larger group, you throw out scenarios, and then they have to use that plan to respond, to answer specific questions. It's a very discussion-based type of exercise. And then we take that information and adjust the plan. And those exercises will begin to escalate in complexity from a tabletop to a functional, and at some point, maybe even a full scale where you actually respond in real time to to a made-up scenario, call people, deploy equipment, and actually test it to its full scale. That's the ultimate uh, goal of an exercise is to get to that level. 
and you continue to tweak it from there. And I would imagine just given the nature of, of some of these plans and the potential incidents that we're preparing for, this isn't just exclusive to TID staff in these tabletop exercises or in some of these exercises. Does it go beyond uh, the, the employees of the district? Absolutely. You know, the, the district has, is really a strong community partner, right? That is a, a pillar of, of importance to the district. And so we do communicate and partner with uh, the county OESs that we touch. Um, we And OESs? Offices of Emergency Services. Perfect. So the five counties that we touch, we engage them and invite them to participate. Local law enforcement, local fire departments uh, are all invited to participate in that because they will have a role in many of these scenarios that we deal with uh, because they are out in the community. Uh, they're not exclusive to our property. And so we we absolutely do bring them in and invite them to participate with us just as we do in going out and participating in their exercises that they conduct because we will be a part of their scenario when life happens. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so beyond the tabletop exercises, how? what other ways do you kind of refine and, and test these plans? Um, so plans like these are required to be reviewed annually. And, and those reviews are very simple reviews. Are the right people still there? Do we have right contacts, right positions? Do we need to add organizations, change organizations? And then every five years, we will do this process all over again. We'll start, yes, we have a foundation, and we have a plan to, to build off of, but we'll go back to the start We'll reconvene the SMEs. We'll rethink our risks, our thresholds, tweak everything that we need to tweak, uh, account for anything that's happened in the last five years, changes to incidents in the world, and develop a whole new plan and start the process all over again. All right. Never ending. Okay. So we hope we never have to use any of these response plans, but in the event that we do, how does what we learn from some of these incidents affect the next version of the plan? So whether it's an exercise or, or a real response, what we'll do is after, after it's done, we'll bring everybody back together that was involved and we'll do what's called a hot wash where we sit down and we, we talk about what went well and what didn't go well, what could we done better, what could be changed. And we put all of that discussion and brainstorming into what we call an after-action report or an after-action review, depending on uh, your preference. And then a part of that is an actual improvement plan where we identify things, maybe something in the plan, or it could be just something the department says, you know what, if we did this, we'd have been better prepared to respond. And maybe they go out and they, they buy sandbags or they buy or they do this or they you know, have a better list of their employee contact information, whatever that might be. But that then goes into an improvement plan that, that we then follow up with and make sure we're checking those things off the list as we make updates to the plan and our processes for what we did. Okay. Can you give us an example of maybe how a plan was updated after a crisis event? Uh, yeah. So back in 2017, uh, one of our, our largest activations uh, in and really the modern emergency management program process has, was our large uh, releases at Don Pedro Dam. So if you recall, we had two years of drought and then suddenly we had an amazingly wet winter. And come February 20th of, uh, tw of 2017, we found that we were facing a full reservoir and had to open one of our single spillways and uh, release that water downstream. And one of the things that uh, TID did 
among many, but one of the key things that we did really, really well, it was communicating externally. Uh, we had amazing staff who were monitoring social media and, and correcting the message that was being heard out there. Uh, we were coordinating with the county and the sheriff and, and messaging that was consistent across. But one thing we, we I, I don't know that we, we forgot, but we just, it just didn't dawn on us is, is internal communication to our employees. And uh, so one of the things that we've done since then, both in, in the increased flows plan, but across all of our plans, is to make sure that we specifically spell out our communication tools and paths for both external, but as well as internal, and making sure our employees hear the exact same thing from us that and give sense. them a pathway to ask questions and get clarity because they need to know how it's going to affect their job. But also, our employees are part of this community. Absolutely. And, and their friends, their family, they're asking them. And they are the best tool we have to communicate to our community is our own employees. So we should have done a better job of that. And that's one of the things that we learned from that. Absolutely. Uh, we yeah. were in our infancy. Now we've grown quite a bit in the five years since that incident. And I, I, we won't make that mistake again. Very good. There are any number of crises and incidents that could befall any organization, um, even TID. How do you determine what rises to the level of needing a plan? And how do you determine, you know, if you've got a handful of these that are on the table, in what order these plans are developed? Well, that that's a good question. And we we used a couple different tools. So back at the beginning, let's go backwards back to 2016 when, when this position was created and we, we really started down this path. What we did is we sat down and we did a strategic plan process. We did a SWOT analysis of the district. We tapped into our enterprise risk uh, at the time, looked at those risks. And from that, we developed our initial list of these are the top five or six uh, incidents of concern, risks to the district that we want to develop a plan for. And then we set a schedule for the next five years. And we were on pace to have those done in 2020. But then something happened uh, <laughs> that kind of threw us for a loop. And uh, But we just did complete the last one in 2021. And so we have completed that original uh, list of plans uh, that we had developed through that risk assessment process. Okay. And so what uh, what's going on with the, that original set of plans now then? So... Some of those original plans, we have the, the major power outage, a canal break, uh, earthquake, wildland fire. Um, we have those plans in place. We've trained on some of them. We continue to update them, and those will continue to be updated every five years going forward. Okay. And then what about new plans or new incidents um, that kind of rise to the level of, of needing a plan created for them? How are, how are those determined? Uh, so we're about to undergo, uh, probably over the next 18 months, that, that original kind of risk assessment process again, uh, where we'll sit down with our enterprise risk uh, team and look at the risks that the district has and look for anything new that uh, we hadn't already addressed mm -hmm. and see if we can identify, hey, you know what, here's a, an outline risk that we should address that isn't addressed somewhere else. But in addition to that, sometimes it's just the the current climate of the country or the world, uh, whether it's political or just, you know, environmental, whatever the circumstances might be, that will bring something up uh, that becomes a topic of concern amongst uh, our department, the management team or others. 
And it'll kind of be a grassroots bubbling approach that'll bring that up. And then we'll identify a need and develop a plan for that. But we're really kind of, as those come up, we'll address them. But our big focus now as we've developed that initial batch is over the next three to five years is really focusing back internal on training and training development of our employees. We're rolling out our active criminal threat training, which will be completed in March for all employees, as well as a five-year plan for rolling out incident command system training, ICS training, to all of our employees as well. Great. Okay. Now, let's talk in the hypothetical, because again, we hope to not find ourselves in an emergency situation. But what would the role of security and emergency preparedness be if we were to find ourselves in a crisis or, or some kind of emergency? So the SNEP's role really is to provide that leadership in the coordination and communication of the emergency. Our individual departments are the experts in their field. I'm not a lineman. I'm not a you know, canal operator. I'm not construction maintenance. I'm not a heavy equipment operator. I don't claim to be and I, and I don't want to be. But they are. And so we allow them, their, their job is to do what they do well. We step back and provide them the support that they need to make sure they have all the resources they need. We're going to be working a lot of long hours. Are they getting fed? Are they rested? Are they getting breaks? We're caring for them as their health, both you know from a safety perspective, as well as just making sure that they just don't get overwhelmed. So we're providing that, that collaboration. And if there's resources needed here, we'll pull from here to support that. So we're, we're providing that overarching leadership. Uh, we're ensuring that communication is consistent and just overall coordination so that those individuals within the departments can do what they do best without worrying about all the other stuff that has to happen along the way. Sure. Okay. And then I would imagine that that's, again, largely based on those plans that you have created. And now you're sort of uh, the maestro in in getting the the rest of the players to kind of uh, play along with what what the guidelines of the plan are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Much like our power control center serves as the traffic control tower for the district. That's right. We're the keeper of all traffic control towers. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. So then what role does do all other TID employees play during a crisis? Well, as a government agency, uh, special district here in California, all of our employees uh, by statute are disaster service workers, uh, meaning simply that in an emergency, if everything's safe at home, we can ask them to come serve as part of our emergency response here at the district. And in most cases, what we try and do is have our employees serve in a role that's similar to what they do every day. So a maintenance worker will tap to ask them to do maintenance worker duties. However, sometimes there's a need to have them step into a role that's slightly different. Obviously, we're not going to ask somebody to operate a piece of equipment they're not trained in or something to that effect, but we may ask people to step into the operations center and, and serve in a role here. They might become a delivery driver where it's something they wouldn't have done every day. So really just flexibility in our employees is key during an incident. We've always had that. We always come together and respond. So it's just not losing sight of who we are as TID. And it kind of goes back to the ICS training that you mentioned earlier. In having that structure, someone from our accounting team could then be working specifically for the incident, doing accounting and managing the invoices specific to that incident. 
similar to their role, but a little bit different. And having that structure kind of helps them know how to adapt in in an emergency situation. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. And that's kind of this ICS training that we've kicked off this year that'll be moving forward is really focused around that, right? It's it's where might you serve in an incident? How is that different than your day-to-day jobs? And who might you report to? Understanding how you fit into that structure because the reality is, is, is we all kind of strip our day-to-day job titles when we step in to serve either in an ICP, an incident command post, or in our district operations center because you might pick up the title of uh, finance section chief. But your day-to-day job might be accountant, right? And so learning how that works and who you report to and how that functions and the duties tied to that, that is that training and it's an essential part of having a successful program. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So as much as we plan and prepare to avoid incidents, we know that they happen. And sometimes things like the weather, for example, are out of our control. Can you give us some examples of a crisis situation that TID has weathered? Sure. Um, Let's maybe look at two examples. I'll give you a big one and then a small one. Perfect. Uh, So a big example I referred to earlier is the 2017 increased flows, meaning uh, in 2017, following the the series of storms, February 20th, we opened a single spillway uh, that resulted in uh, increased flows into the Tuolumne River down to the San Joaquin. Uh, We exceeded the capacity of the historic river channel, causing some localized flooding. That was a full activation. We were activated for a couple weeks. And much like I referred to earlier with the wildland fire, we actually started with a very small group some communications and some pre-planning. When's this going to happen? Where is it going to, when's it going to be? When do we anticipate it happening? We start to communicate with our partners at the counties, at the cities, uh, and we're starting to roll up. Then we start talking about planning for the removal of Bonds Flat Road. Uh, If you remember during Chris Harden's uh, podcast earlier this year, they talked about removing Bonds Flat Road uh, so we didn't send all that asphalt and debris down the river. Uh, we started planning for that. How's that going to happen? How can, how quickly can we do that? Because if we finally set a date of when we're going to open and we know we need 48 hours, it helps us to work backwards. So we built on that. Our role as SNEP, as I mentioned earlier, was not to, to come up with the way to remove the road, but it was to coordinate that process that it was being figured out mm-hmm. and being built into our response and then coordinating that preparedness and communication across the organization and outward to make sure that everybody had the same information and knew that that we were um, where we were headed with this incident. Sure. Because as you know, up until the last moment, you're never sure if you're actually going to open a spillway. Because until that water falls and until that river flows, you don't know what's actually going to end up in the reservoir. And so, you know, it's as much as you prepare for it, it, it until that last second, you we weren't sure. And so once that decision was made and we knew, then we were able to elevate the activation, flip the switch, and people started responding. At that point, a lot of what my department did was just coordinating everybody else who was already working, that maestro, as you referred to it. Every person in that symphony had a role and was very good at what they were doing. It was just making sure that all those roles we're playing music together through the process. Absolutely. 
All right. And then a, a smaller incident? Yeah. So uh, August of 2020, we had the SCU complex fire. Uh, this was a um, much smaller incident response on our part. Fourth largest fire at the time in, in the state of California. So a huge response for CAL FIRE. But for TID, our response was much smaller because um, it was limited for us to the Del Puerto Canyon and Diablo Grande uh, community area. And, and it moved very, very quickly. It, it reached our district and was through our territory in less than a day. And, and that specific area that you mentioned, Del Puerto Canyon, that's on the very western tip of TID service That's territory. correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On the west side of uh, I-5 uh, of Patterson. And so for us, it was a much smaller response. It was limited. Uh, you know, my emergency preparedness coordinator, Calvin Curtin, uh, was the lead on that. And really what we did is we were communicating with CAL FIRE and then providing that communication to our line department. Here's where the fire's at. Here's where it's headed. Providing uh, communication to power control, trading and scheduling, energy balance. So we knew what we were going to have to do. Line department did some uh, uh, de-energizing of lines uh, to protect firefighters and the community. And then once the fire went back by, within a day, we transitioned immediately to recovery. And again, Calvin was the incident commander of that. We established a, a base up there where we could have all of our supplies sent to with security and food and you know restrooms and all that, which allowed our crews to work from there. And they were able to respond faster and restore service to our customers much, much quicker because of that assistance with the coordination. Again, we didn't engineer the lines. We didn't tell them where to put new poles. We simply provided that support service to them so that they were able to functionally go out and do what they needed to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. A, a critical part of the response. And then uh, you you mentioned it and we kind of had a chuckle about uh, uh, an incident that came up in 2020 that I think I can safely say affected everyone. Um, tell us a little bit about the district's response during COVID. What uh, That's not necessarily something that you would would plan on happening, but certainly something that we we had to have a response for. Yeah, and uh, as as uh, as General Manager Reimers mentioned in her podcast number one, you know the district nobody knew what to expect with with COVID. It was an unknown, and uh, and it was very unique on on many fronts. But because of the planning we had done, and in our continuity of operations, we we had brainstormed around pandemics, not. COVID, but pandemics in general, um, we, we had already had some concepts in place. Uh, and so that helped us that initial response. But, you know, COVID is very unique because there's no location. You know, wildfire is there. Right. Uh, spill is at the reservoir. COVID, COVID is everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> exactly. And, and so how do you respond to such a fluid incident that literally the, the, Protocols and requirements were changing every single day for that initial response. Well, it became a lot about communication. So SNEP's role was really knowledge gathering. We were on public health calls every day, CDC calls, uh, OSHA reports, different things like that. We were consolidating and aggregating da data daily as a department and then sitting down with our management team, department heads, and, and processing that to say, how does this affect TID? Our goal, keeping our employees safe, keeping our power on, keeping the water flowing, right? Our priorities. How do we do that within the confines of the COVID requirements? 
And that was really what we did every single day for that first nine months until we got a flow going. And although we thought we'd be done by now, uh, that flow is in place. And with little tweaks now and then, it has functioned very, very well. And that's, that's to, that, that's because of the great work that this organization did as a team beyond what I did, what beyond the management team. It was everybody communicating, responding together. It's that teamwork that the district has that allowed us to put these in place. And then our employees operated within those has kept our employees very safe. Absolutely. And, and again, as you mentioned before, it's relying on those subject matter experts to, to know what they know, to pass that along to us, for us to receive that information, to seek that out. And then what, what your group does with that information as far as the distrib- distribution to our customers, to our um, employees, uh, you know, goes a long way in shaping the district's response. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. So TID has someone monitoring the environmental health of the district and making sure our people have the training that they need to stay safe and respond to an issue when when that's needed. We have someone maintaining our physical security. We have response plans in place for a multitude of situations. Um, if our listeners walk away with nothing else, I, I feel like they should feel confident that TID is thinking through any number of potential negative situations and preparing for how to successfully respond to these incidents in a way that ensures we continue to provide reliable irrigation water and power. It, is that a fair statement? And, and do you have any closing thoughts that you wanted to add? Uh, I, I think that was well said. I, I don't know that I could really add anything to it. I, I think that sums it up quite well. And you know, if I was going to add anything, I would just simply say that that's possible because of the support of our management team and, you know, general manager Rymers and their commitment to protecting our employees and the public in general. Um, so with that, you know, the only closing comments I guess I'd add is first off is to say thank you to my team. Um, they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones that are working hard every day coming in, you know, Pat, Calvin, Carlos, and Jeff. Uh, so appreciate them because they're the ones that make that statement true. Um, but to our employees here at the district, SNEP is here to support you, to provide support to your department, whether it's a storm, helping you prepare for a storm or, or a specific project. We're here to serve you. Uh, and then secondly, to our customers, to the listeners, to our community partners, uh, that includes you. We have a pillar of being a member of this community. We live here. We work here. And so we want to extend that to our partner agencies, the community. How can we help you? be prepared as well. Awesome. I think that's a a great way to wrap up. So thanks, Jason, very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com slash TurlockID, on Instagram and Twitter at TurlockID, and on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you again next time.